In the woods, there's a cabin full of dreams and nightmares. Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, and the rest of the 13-person cast and crew of The Evil Dead headed from Michigan to Tennessee to begin filming the low-budget horror film in 1981. Having scrounged together $90,000 by any means necessary, including Bruce Campbell leveraging his parents' home, the hopeful filmmakers went on their way to create a demonic and terrifying entry of their own imagination into the canon of horror films that would come to define the 1980s. Featuring buckets of fake blood, countless prosthetics, and even some stop motion, the highly inventive feature film debut of director Sam Raimi would go on to launch his career and gross $2.9 million worldwide and gain the praise of horror icon Stephen King. After the film's success, Raimi went on to direct another project, 1985's Crime Wave, which was a flop. At the suggestion of his publicist, Raimi and his now-writing partner Scott Spiegel began writing a follow-up to The Evil Dead to help return them to some familiar territory where they may better be able to thrive. Stephen King, excited at the prospect of a sequel film, reached out to Oscar-winning producer Dino De Laurentiis and convinced him to produce the film. With a massive budget increase from $375,000 of the original up to $3.6 million for the sequel, the cast and crew once again gathered their things for a trip out into the woods, this time into North Carolina, to shoot another blood-soaked adventure. One issue that was present at the beginning of the filming process that needed to be overcome was that they were unable to get the rights to show footage from the original, which Raimi had wanted to use to establish the preceding events as a lead-in to the sequel's storyline. Instead, the clips that they would have used were reshot, creating the narrative that the sequel would actually be a remake. While very much so not the case, with enough similarity in themes and events, the rumor had stuck that this film was both a sequel and a remake, baked into one. A requel. Outdoing the original in blood and viscera, this 1987 follow-up film was ultimately released on it with an X rating. Typically an unappealing rating due to the reduced revenue possibilities, the film still went on to double its budget, earning just under $6 million at the box office, and spawning a further installment. Often seen as the crowning achievement of this franchise, this became the film to cement Sam Raimi as an innovative filmmaker, all thanks to this gory, funny, horrifying romp deep in the woods in the dark of night. Welcome to the follow-up. So... In preparation for this, as always, we watched uh, the original and as well as the remake, it, it, or the, the sequel. It's funny because uh, all growing up, I had thought that this was uh, a remake because uh, you, always, you, like, you get told it is, and so you kind of just view it in that headspace. And there's the weird thing it does at the very beginning, which is reintroduce you to the concept of the Necronomicon, you know? And that's one of the, I guess, the weird bits about this movie, kind of right at the jump, is that it's weird that they introduce, they do a last time in the woods, you know, by giving you the reshot footage. Because if that's what they wanted to do, it makes sense why they would recreate the scenes from the original they couldn't get the rights to. But you also have to stop and ask yourself, when do sequels ever do that? Um, like sometimes, but it's, it's not like every sequel to every movie must contain flashbacks to the original, especially at the top, like it was an HBO TV show where they give you the last time on. 
Um, so it is, if you get told that this is a remake, there's not much of a reason you, you can, you can make that narrative fit it by forcing that perspective, which is kind of weird. Yeah. I, I didn't actually think of that. They didn't need to recreate it in the beginning. Not at all. Um, They could have just had Ash wake up in the same spot. He ended up waking up when they fast forwarded. However many years they fast forwarded, um, well, I don't think it's I don't think it's any years. I, I think that the events of the um, the sequel are meant to take place immediately following the events of the original, which is you know Ash also, is still in the same costume. He's still mm-hmm. theoretically in the same um, same cabin. It's obviously a different cabin that was shot, uh, but uh, because you know, well, the first one was filmed in Tennessee and this one was filmed in North Carolina, but. Uh, I think the impression is supposed to be it is the same exact location. Uh, that was hard for me to grasp because the ages of the him in the first... Like, the, he just looks so different. Did you also get that impression? That he looked quite different from the original? Uh, six years, you know. It, uh, I didn't think he looked, like, incredibly different. Like, I wasn't... I could tell it was him. But yeah. for it for it to happen right after, I was like... It didn't, didn't, it, I didn't get that at first. Like it was supposed to happen at like immediately after. Right. I'll okay. start in by saying this is not my kind of movie. I was about to ask how, how you felt about doing it. This is, it's a funny franchise because it is pretty lighthearted and tongue in cheek in certain spots. Like the fact that the hand has a voice essentially when uh, Ash is trying to, uh, before he cuts it off, when he's when he's like negotiating with it a little bit and you know trying to keep it away from the knives and everything, like as the hand scuttles on the floor, like it, it has a little pip squeakish voice, um, it is- which is meant to be like it's not meant to be serious, you know, it's not a scary voice. It sounds like a Looney Tunes character. It, it's very. It is pl- also uh, sorry to cut you. <laughs> cut no, you it is also like bloody and visceral. So. I was going to say that that's, I think, was also off-putting for me because, like, I couldn't tell what this movie was trying to do because um, at times it was super playful like that. But then other times, like, I genuinely, like, got a jump scare because we, we talked about this when we were watching it, that, like, it's so fake looking. Like, it's it looks so good, but it you can also tell it's fake that it's off-putting in a way that movies nowadays wouldn't be able to do you know what I mean like they like nowadays you can really dress something up to like make it look real but somehow because it looks so real it's less scary because you know like zombies aren't real this one it's like that you could like their eyes are glazed over white and like they it's there's like it literally looks like they drew on like you know Frankenstein-esque Halloween costume makeup but it was so like the movements of the actors and I couldn't tell genuinely what parts of it uh, were stop motion and what parts of it were not because the actors their physical comedy was so or not physical comedy just their physicality in general was so like uh creepy and like appropriate for the scene that I felt like when it switched from what would be stop motion to just regular motion, it was, I don't know, kind of seamless, but equally as creepy. So, so the whole time I had this kind of thing of like, okay, what am I actually watching right now? Are they, is it, 
is it real? Is it not real? Like it was very, it was very off-putting. It's funny because that's also kind of the history of of horror movies in general. You know, is that they, um, before effects got good and and horror films, genre films in general are mm-hmm. um one of the driving factors for why a lot of um special effects work ended up becoming just better because it was a genre that necessitated it constantly, right? Mm-hmm. You might have a high-budget war film every every now and then. They're not horribly infrequent, but you know they're not like every year where you might require some additional special effects work. But there's horror movies that require um, either some additional level of realness or some additional level of detail within Unreal Situation to make them feel more terrifying. Um, so there's a constant need to kind of advance that field of it. And, you know, this being a low-budget production, both of them being low-budget productions, the first one especially, this one less so, really lead them down the rabbit hole of needing ingenuity, um, mm. which with a low budget but a high-minded idea, it can lead to, like you were saying, some really off-putting stuff, which is, again, though, the history of this kind of genre. Like, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is a German expressionist horror film from the like the 20s, is like a bunch of cardboard sets. You know, it's so low rent, mm. but it looks so off-putting and creepy because it's so not right. Yeah. You yeah. know, like it's not that it's a terrifying movie because it's a hun- literally a hundred years old and you'll watch it and be like, oh, well, I mean, like this definitely would have scared the shit out of me if I was in 1925 or whatever. But like yeah. I can see this just as a regular, regular movie now. But like it is weird. It's a weird. I mean, that's why like Nosferatu is still kind of a creepy creature because there, yeah. there, there's a weirdness to it. Um Sorry, I thought you were about to say something. Well, I was gonna say it like it had that off-putting nature, but then like the 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 goofiness of Ash, the main character, groovy. Um, like he was he was very much giving Jim Carrey like a decade before Jim Carrey got got famous. Well, I, I guess in in this one it'd be about about four or five years. But it was it was just very interesting because you're like. The, the whole time I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. I'm like, because this is creepy, but I'm not, like, scared yet. And would then you I mark s- that as a success of the movie that you didn't know how to feel? Or would you mark that as a failure before you go into that point? Because it's an interesting thought. I think maybe a success. It's a movie that obviously doesn't take itself too seriously. Like, if this was a, like, non-parody horror film, I'd say that'd be a failure. But because it was, you know parody-esque i think that it's a strength of the film because it's one of those films that's like so weird and like everything's like the scene where he's um in the he cuts off his hand and or he's, he's fighting he's on like the kitchen floor like writhing around right and he's like it, it's like it goes on forever and you're like when is this gonna stop and like the it's one of those things where like the camera's just holding on him and he's just like acting the shit out of that scene you know what i mean like with all like the the physicality that that particular it scene a involves huge performance yeah yes and um it's just one of those things where, where you're watching it and you're like am i thinking it's going on to like do you do you also think it goes on too long it's one of those things where like you're kind of you're watching it and you're looking around to see if other people are like also think the way you do but then it moves like right into the next thing um which was interesting and i also think that well, I hate being scared and I don't like, I don't, I do not watch horror movies. I'm, I'm, you know, surprised you got me to watch these. And I think that you, 
you sold it to me as these are fun horror movies. Like these are not horror horror movies, which I would agree with, but because it kind of lets you put your guard down a little bit because that Brent Campbell is so like funny in Bruce. His, Bruce, sorry. Bruce oh. Campbell is so funny in his movements that when there actually is like the jump scares, it really fucking gets you. Like when the guy Okay, we should get into the plot, I guess. Well, just just some more broad stroke stuff, and then and yeah, and then then I'll let, let let's dive into some plot stuff because it is, it's so interesting because of who Sam Raimi is, especially to look at these movies. You know, hmm. these two specifically. Obviously, we we can maybe hypothetically down the road talk about Army of Darkness, which is an amazing, amazing third installment to this franchise. Hmm. Um, but you look at what Sam does with these two movies and you completely like you can see a guy that has a ton, a ton of ideas and enough ingenuity and technical know-how to do a lot of stuff within limitations. Mm-hmm. And so you can see like, oh, yeah, I get how like eventually this guy goes on to be the guy who makes the first successful version of Spider-Man. Right. You know, and because it's it's that kind of weird career where he's constantly just oscillating between horror movies and big budget block blockbuster movies. Because like the first movie he gets after this, the first um, uh, feature film he gets after this is the Darkman movie, Darkman, which is I think a DC comic, um, and that's one of the the first like. I think it's about three years after Howard the Duck, which is the first Marvel movie to be made. So, like, right at the beginning of the superhero comic book uh, franchise. And then, you know, makes the third installment to Army of Darkness after that. And then, uh, you know, does a few other movies that aren't worth getting into. But then 2002, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. And then his next two movies are Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3. And then he just his most recent film that he directed that that's that's been out is the newest Doctor Strange movie, mm. and it's like and in between all those movies is a bunch of other just like kind of neat or weird um, horror films, but you can see how like there's that that's the kind of guy that you want to have doing weird stuff because he clearly has really interesting ideas to it, and that's right. what makes the comic book genre work when it does work is here's a here's a really kooky vision right because they aren't i mean superhero movies shouldn't be too Mm -hmm, mm self-serious because they they don't work like that sometimes dc's been trying to make that a thing ever since the nolan batman movies where it is exceedingly dour and and very very you know intense but also but i mean that's what that's how marvel found their success in the early goings was here are movies that are you know serious stuff is happening the world's at threat people's lives are at stake but we're also but they're fun and relatable characters the regular the regular people who are gonna like you know crack wise every now and then or some shit i saw like a 1930s gangster Crack (laughs) crack wise um the other about sorry i mean i i don't have much else to say about um sam Raimi. 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 Fuck. <laughs> it has been edited out, but Cal messed up the intro several times. <laughs> um, Michigan Jew. He's a Michigan Jew. We love that. Um, the other thing I thought was was creative is like with the 
what are we calling this actually a remake or a sequel it's a se- this okay. is this is a sequel mm-hmm. that is that is what it is okay so the sequel um what, what i what i did like about the original is that it was very much about like the gang right the gang is there in the cabin it's the hijinks and then like it's kind of like that and then there was there were there and then there was one kind of concept of like they keep getting got by the thing and then ash has to keep killing his friends and all this stuff and um what i actually liked about the sequel was there's a good chunk of the beginning of the movie that it is just him and like he he battles like the the undead um his ex-girlfriend yeah i guess that comes back oh, only extras he had to, to murderize her <laughs> that's yeah. true but like it was then it, there was such a really cool like there was so much introspection that was showcased in the beginning of the film because it was like okay he he then again overcomes his ex-girlfriend that he had killed previously and then a lot of the movie is like him just grappling with what his reality is then like him versus himself almost like with the hand and things like that and then i can't remember at what point this happens i think at the end but like he he does have like the demon inside of him uh, how's it the beginning Right. That's okay. why he's wrestling with his hand. Um, and right. there's that scene. I guess we'll talk about the plot now. Um, I, I'm trying to, to ramble less. I feel like every now and then you bring up a good point and it makes me want to say something. And then it just, we get uh, sidetracked too far. So I'm going to, I'm going to shut the fuck up every now and then. Okay. <laughs> um, so like I was saying, there, there, there's, there's the whole beginning of the movie is really just a, a, a recap or a rehashing of events. Uh, but without much of the original cast, so it, it kind of just streamlines it. It's 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 odd. I guess it it works out well if you're like, oh, I only want to see the second movie <laughs> or some shit, you know. Like so, you don't have to have seen the first, which also might have worked. Might have been the reason they did it for for this in particular, since the first Evil Dead, while it's now very popular because, or very well-known at least, because Sam Raimi is a very well-known person and there was a very successful remake in 2013 and there's about to be another one. All that shit. Um, I can see the idea for this one being like, that was six years ago. Yeah. And it was a very limited release. So Mm. let's catch people up to speed so they don't feel like they have to have seen the first one. Sure. So... It, but it ends in a in a slightly different spot because it it or, or it begins yeah it begins with a different kind of ending from the first one where at the end of the first one Ash like survived right and right. you know everyone is dead and buried and then in this one it it starts with the rehashing of the ending of the last one and then his he gets taken in by the the tree the demon. <laughs> the Kondun, I think it was something like that I forget. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm bad with names, especially like <laughs> especially ones. ones of demons. Yeah, especially yeah, the made up ones of demons. <laughs> um, and uh, it sh- we we get this, the established uh, concept that it, it doesn't like the light, which is I guess why this all takes place during uh, the evening. And uh, the bridge is still out. We also established that the bridge is still out. It is comically out. So I, I might also add this: the second one. Again, the whole thing, it was like, I couldn't tell what was... It was giving me... Uh, what's that movie with, like, the, the really famous stop motion, like, this is Halloween movie? Oh, Nightmare Before Christmas? It was really giving Nightmare Before Christmas, especially, like... Henry Selleck? I don't know, the style of, like... And I guess maybe it 
this film lent itself to that because he was spo- he was like going crazy and like oh no like when he saw that the bridge was out he was so fucking dramatic about it but the way that they zoomed in on the bridge like obviously like it was like a fake like bridge thing yeah very much a painted right but yeah. it, but that's what it made me think of like the the nightmare before christmas style which again is a super creepy movie in my opinion so like because of the style and i don't know i feel like this kind of replicated that in a way yeah, it, it, it's somewhere, right? It's also funny to consider that a low-budget movie had to resort to stop-motion because nowadays in the world of animation, we consider stop-motion to be prohibitively expensive to do um, because it, it takes so long. It takes so long and takes, um, you know, so much manpower to accomplish that it's it's very expensive, which is why most studios hate doing it now. Mm. Like the fact that Guillermo del Toro's got got the Pinocchio movie done was, you know, huge. In years, but yeah. And it was huge for that movie because like, for that fight, like it is now, oftentimes if there is a stop motion film that's done, it's not done in the US because it's considered an investment into the arts and not so much an investment financially. Right. So the fact that like you, there's... The, Really cool looking stop motion in this movie because they had to because that was the last resort is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in the beginning that I I really love, which is one of the things that that, that I think is really effective about this film that uh, and its predecessor that that comes out of the uh, the small budget nature of it is that there is your POV for the um like the demonic presence at times is the camera right so that's our our like introduction into the the sinister nature of what's happening is dramatic sweeping camera movements that you know travel through the woods and and you know basically like uh, go into people's faces right which serves the purpose uh, as every pov shot in a horror movie does of keeping you from having to show whatever it, the, that thing is cuz usually it's expensive to do that but it is also like offers a vague uh, threatening presence and one of the things that I like about this movie that kind of establishes the tone really early on is that after Ash realizes that the bridge is out and he's like, well, fuck, I guess I might as well go back to the cabin because that thing, that omnipresent evil is out here. It starts to chase him and it chases him around the house. Mm-hmm. And so this is like this is really funny, but like it is tense because you don't want him to get caught. But he's literally like. Scooby-Doo style running around the house and in between the walls. Yeah, they're like Tom and Jerrying it. Yeah, like trying to outmaneuver the camera, essentially. And he does. And there's a moment where the where the, the the camera loses him and it like kind of just like looks both ways and <laughs> can't find him and then just backs out of the house. Yeah. And it's a great establishment of tone early in the film to let you know like it, we're here because to to give you a, a scare or or so every now and then to be a little bit tense, but we're gonna have some fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. the uh, The other thing I wanted to mention was the necro what is necronomicon. The necronomicon is the book, and it's uh, <laughs> it very much looks like the book from Hocus Pocus. Do you know the? It has like a face, or it looks like the thing from Harry Potter with the hat. You are referencing two things that stole their ideas from this movie. Really? I mean, Harry Potter, the books, 15 years after the original. Hocus Pocus, the movie, also about 15 years after the original Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... 
I'm sure that there's something that predates this as well, but this is a, yeah. a, a big cultural touchstone for faces on, on, on inanimate, inanimate objects. objects. Yeah. yeah. So after Ash like outmaneuvers the uh, de- demon, I guess we get into what the plot of the movie actually is going to be. The plot of the first one is very straightforward, very like you know 1980s, 1970s slasher setup. Mm-hmm. Here's a group of college kids. They're going into the woods to plow for the weekend, and then what happens? Ghosts or whatever, you know. Might I add? We, Might we opened this film with, um, you know, in both cases, in both films, they introduce the idea of the what is it called? The Necronomicon, Nec- I'm which never does gonna not be able get, which gets a little like title card introduction here, which which is different from the first one. But yeah, go ahead. So the the Necronomicon, it's it, long story short, we find in both films that it's discovered by this older couple that is vacate. It's their cabin, I think. Yeah, yeah. They they are well. The the man is a researcher, right? So he finds the Necronomicon and like the Middle East somewhere. And yeah. is is reading it like he he I, he's the idea because he's a researcher he's like recording on tape his findings and like reporting to himself or to whoever who to whomever might listen to the thing, um so he's recording himself and but either way that happens like years and years and years ago these kids come to the cabin and they find this tape recorder, and I don't know maybe it's because I know it's a horror movie, but. If I'm in a cabin in the middle of the woods and there's a tape recorder and I start playing it and it's this man discussing about how he found this evil book and that the demons have taken over his wife and all of this shit, like, don't you stop that tape? Well, I think if you're also a scientist, you have the want for documentation. No, not the scientists, the kids that find it. Oh, oh, oh. They I replay it and they listen that, to see, it. Th- that's actually one of the things I really like about the remake, which I really do want to show you what you would hate so much because it is a really good horror movie in that it is terrifying. Will not be doing um, that. But the the one kid that like is the one who finds the book and latches onto it as a thing is like, uh, I think a classics guy. Like he's a nerdy dude who like this is his jam. So he he can't stop listening to it because it, it feeds right into his own bookishness. But right. I get what you mean. Wh- which I think this film does a really good job of like you know kind of sidestepping, which is that it's no longer about um, blind discovery. Instead, what happens here is that uh, another researcher, which is actually the daughter of these two found missing pages from the Necronomicon somewhere else mm-hmm. and is going out to this same cabin because that's where her parents last were heard from. So she assumed that they were there because this is the eighties and there was no way to contact somebody who was in a cabin. Yeah. Um, and then she, you know, her and her associates get embroiled in the horror movie of it all. So it's her and her partner, it's research her, partner, yeah, whatever. Her. And then they meet a couple on their way to the cabin because they were like, they'd stop and ask for directions. So all four of them end up going to the cabin where they find Ash, who, you know, they're, what are you doing in my father's cabin? Which I think is a really nice setup because it brings in there was five people in the original. Mm. I, I think they're like that's the that's the perfect number of death scenes we have to shoot. <laughs> so, it, and it also it's good because like 
it establishes like this is the main character this is like our hero so to speak and then there's like it's coupled off and like you know so if you, you have five and then you're down to four like it's a good it's a good number to work with as far as killing people off. And it introduces a nice dynamic later on in the film where there's some some double crossing or, or some self-interest that's reflected in the uh, the um, the characters because they don't have a relationship with each other. So it really is like the polar opposite of the original in that way where the first one's like, oh, fuck Sally or whatever. Like, oh, we got to save her. And everyone's kind of like conflicted because yeah. she looks like a ghoul. But it's <laughs> it's I guess it's still Sally. Yeah. Whereas this one, it's like, fuck that guy. I do not know who he is. Literally. I will kill him, mm-hmm. which is, a, again, a really nice change so that it's not the same yeah. kind of moral deliberations as the first one. Like when Ash... Um, has like a moment where he is uh, the possessed version of himself. The people are immediately like in the fucking basement. Get mm-hmm. down in that goddamn basement. You know what I mean? Like they're not they're they're not conflicted at all. I like that the the filmmakers played with the idea of like there really is still a person in there, but. It is the demon, no matter what. They do that several times throughout the film, where, like, in the beginning, when he has to re-murder his girlfriend, her head's in, like, this this thing that ha- that's compressing it on both sides. A vice. So he, a vice. Um, and she it goes from the demon version of her, which, again, looks so fucking creepy. So good. It's got to be the lighting, too. It was just insane. Um switches to the like human normal version of her and she's like ash please don't hurt me i love you and he like hesitates for a second and then like he you know he then decides like sorry I've bitch you still gotta go yeah. <laughs> you still gotta go and then goes to kill her and then like again she turns back to the demon version and that that same thing happens when um so the researchers the the og researchers the old folk that were there and had originally found the book um the mother is um I actually thought that was one of the funniest parts of the film where they find out that the mother um, of the, the mother, we'll just the mother, the mother, yeah, yeah, the mother, yeah, the, they're listening to the recording and the researcher goes, uh, and the, and the wife, you know, she was possessed and I locked her down in the basement and yeah, that's I buried her in the basement. This was a big right. thing in the first one where, where everyone was like, we got to bury these people. That's how we solve the issue. We kill them and then we bury them and then they won't come back. Right. And then the first fight that Ash gets in is he buried his girlfriend's decapitated body out in front of the house. And sure enough, it comes back to life and tries to kill him again. Yeah. So, so when there is to the, to, the, to the mother, when, the, so it's just funny. Cause it was one of those, like those comical beats of like, Ash is in the basement, but he can still hear them play the recording upstairs. And it was that moment where, like, the the researchers look at each other after the dad had said, and I buried her in the basement. And then, like, Ash looks up and then looks down at a pile of dirt. And then, like, immediately the mother arises from the dirt and they have to fight down there. And he's like, get me out of here. You're like, this woman's trying to kill me. And they're, like, deliberating upstairs of, like, do we let him out of the basement? Like, And then they... And then they- <laughs> This is, and this is the thing that the movie does so well, is that everyone is trying. Like, they, they are actively trying to get Ash out of the basement in that scene. and But Ash is also, like, desperately pressing up on the, the trap door of the basement. Mm-hmm. But because he's 
you know, keeps slamming the trap door of the basement up, the guy who's holding the key trying to undo the lock <laughs> keeps missing the lock, right. which is a great bit of tension because it's not incompetence on either person's side. Like, obviously, you, we can sit there and say, hey, Ash, if you just stop doing that, then they can unlock. But it's like, right. you get it. Like, there is uh, a literal horror <laughs> Literally. Down in the basement, coming for his ass. <laughs> like, we'd all be doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, There's so, no logic at that point. Well, and that's the thing. Is it's like, it's perfectly understandable. That's what it's when horror movies work best um, mm. in terms of building tension is when everyone's doing the right things. But it still isn't enough to stop what's happening. Mm. Because that's... It's so, it's, it's so easy to look at a person... You stepping down into a basement that is like dripping with blood and being like, hey, fucking idiot, don't, don't go down to the basement. Like, right. uh, you, you hear the sound of chainsaws from your basement? Don't go in the basement. And this person's like, I don't know what's gotten over me, but I got to see what's in this goddamn basement. Right. Um, and what Sam Raimi does really well uh, is showing rational actors. One of the other mm-hmm. things that he sets up really well that I just wanted to touch on real quick. There's no long uninterrupted portions of of not being scary. So the scenes in which the daughter and, and her whole impromptu or um, spontaneously assembled posse coming out to the cabin are constantly interspersed with scenes of Ash, like dealing with how terrible it is there. Yeah. And you get some really, really engaging shots, which is, you know, like the severed head of the girlfriend, which like falls in his lap and is super creepy. And there's a killer shot of Ash looking at himself in the mirror and then the mirror version of him like jumps out at him and, and then, grabs him by the collar. And then it's revealed that that's just like a vision. Like there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff that's happening throughout because one of the differences for me as a horror movie guy between watching an original versus watching a first version or a, a, a first movie versus a sequel is I know what everyone's in for mm-hmm. in the sequel. I know what these four people are about to encounter when they go to the cabin. So there's not good tension being built there because, well, I I saw the first one, you know, like I I don't need you to, you're not going to be building tension by giving it so much time away from being spooky and scary. Uh, And instead the movie's like, okay, yeah, we know that. So we're going to give it to you on from both barrels. We're going to give you the couple coming out here, which will have a few moments of like light civilian tension, and then we'll just be going hard on the the campy, uh, over the top gore shit that um, Ash is experiencing. Right. It was a nice juxtaposition. Yeah, it works. I mean, like, so if, for a movie that is eighty five minutes long. The the four added characters don't show up until the 28-minute mark in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, a, a good third of the movie is just the characters that will be providing the thrust of the film showing up to the, um, the, the cabin itself. Honestly, the, the plot of this movie, I'm, ju- I'm just thinking about it. It's it's very straightforward. Like there's a few beats that happen and like even with the complexity of like the added story, like I, I appreciate that like Sam Raimi 
made everything make sense. Like, okay, why is the daughter here? Well, the daughter's here uh, because her father's there. But it's not just that. It's the fact that she has these missing pages that are going to play some, you know, additional role in the film. Um you know, why are these, why are these random people here? Well, you know, they, they know the cabin's a little bit spooky or whatever. Um, but they come in and it's just additional characters to kill off that aren't as important as ultimately the researcher and Ash, who end up being the final two folks that are alive in the film at the end. Um, well, I mean, um, the, the final two that we spend the most time with. Right. Um, so I don't know. I, but other than that, it's like the the scenes of the movie are, you know, Ash in the beginning where they set up the original and then he's, you know, having this introspective kind of uh, battle with the, the demon inside of him, uh, the researcher and that gang showing up and then all the hijinks that ensue then. And then like that's, I don't know, that's kind of the, oh my God. So that again, that's relatively straightforward. Then we get to the end of the movie, which I won't spoil yet, but it's like, it makes so much sense. Oh, I love the Until end. you I get to the, the end. ending. So we come to find out that the two pages that the, that the uh, young researchers brought is actually how to get rid of right. the demon, right? Um, which proves to be very opportune. Yeah, we're very lucky there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Whatever, like you will take it. Uh, the film like doesn't spend too much time trying to explain anything to you, which for a movie like this is to its benefit. And so there is, um, amidst all of the the horror that is, you know, um, all of what's happening, <laughs> there is the the progression of a movie needs to have rules for how to get out of whatever you're in, mm-hmm. because if if it doesn't, it almost becomes pointless. Right, and that's not to say that everyone has to succeed in making that happen, mm-hmm. but there has to be an understanding of how to stop whatever it is that's uh, confronting you. Right, there's always a, a moment of discovery in like a zombie movie where it's like, oh, uh, we're shooting him in the heart and nothing's happening. Let me try shooting him in the head. You got aim for the head. Every right. heart, every zombie movie, yeah, werewolf movie, you got to figure out it's the silver bullet. Uh, Vampire movie, you got to figure out it's a cross and garlic, yeah. like. Every movie has its thing. And the first one, they thought it was burying the body and then it ended up not being it. So now they're like, oh, we need pages, uh, which is also a good a good twist because if that was not twist, but change uh, advancement. Because if they kept the whole just bury the bodies thing and all of a sudden it, it, you don't want to do too much retreading because we just we just saw it. You know what I mean? Like we, we need to advance. um the, the methodologies and, and and the world of this a little bit to keep it interesting. Plus, it brings you back to the the book, which it's all about the book, much, baby. Plus, it plays a much more significant role in the second film than the first. Hence, why it gets its own little animated title card sequence. <laughs> the Necronomicon. <laughs> Super fun thing to say. Oh, what like do you Star think Wars about the second uh, tree fucking a lady scene? Uh, we get one in the first one. We get another one here. In the, <laughs> just in case you missed it the first time round. Here's a bunch of trees fucking a lady. I, <laughs> I was really impressed with how they did that. Like, because again, and I couldn't tell if it was like, it, it, it does look like stop motion, which actually, actually might make sense. But she's acting so much I that I like, how do you do it motion. like that? I think it has to be like 
wires and lines and shit because it didn't look stop motionish. But I'm not. I'm genuinely uncertain. Yeah, I have no idea. But it's funny because if you watch the first one, the second she goes into the wood, you know the scene is coming. Like you know what's happening, which is kind of funny because it happens much faster in this film than it does in the first one. Like you get um, the second she runs into it, like like in the first one. It's like the 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 trees like drag her for like ten miles, and then it's like, you know, you get the the one by one the branches intertwining and the the branch like seductively like unbuttoning her shirt. This time around, it was aggressive and quick. That tree was that tree knew what it wanted, <laughs> and it went for it. But it's just funny because like it's like a joke that the a joke that was a bad way to put it but like it's like a <laughs> it's all a joke and it's a really it's, funny joke it's a it's a stunt that the audience is already privy to having seen the first one so it's just like the second you go into the woods you're like the trees are gonna get you bitch they're gonna get you <laughs> oh the audience was was waiting to, for you to get fucked by a tree mm-hmm. it is it is a funny twist on or subversion of the horror movie trope of um, ah, if you get fucked, you're going to die, right? But the whole idea being that, like, part of why audiences come out to see these types of movies is to see the sex scenes, you know? Yeah. So many of these B, C, D horror movies uh, get audiences 50-50 because of the blood and because of the boobs, <laughs> you know? It, it's <laughs> Blood it, and boobs, that's all you need. Blood and boobs, and so this movie's like, oh, you came here for sex? Well, here's the most uncomfortable sex scene you're going to witness, which is between a, uh, an unwilling participant lady and a, a series tree. of vines. <laughs> it's terrible. I, I will say, um, it's definitely like, it, it's one of those things that catches you like a little bit off guard because like it's hard to watch. Like the, I remember, I, I, I honestly remember like closing my eyes a little bit during the second film when the when the rape tree scene happened because in the first one, again, I told you like the vines are like seductively grabbing her and in your head you're like having never seen something like this before she's gonna get fucked by a tree right I was, I was like that can't be where this is going and it like unbuttons her blouse and like it literally looks like a finger like trying to and then out of fucking nowhere the trees uh, I guess dick comes shooting out of this fucking tree and just like impales this woman in the first film and I was like that is too much so that's what i i don't know if that happened in the second one because i kind of closed my eyes but like, yeah, yeah, yeah it did oh my <laughs> gosh um but so i do have a question yeah when the it's my understanding that only one person can be possessed at a time no oh uh, okay because i was wondering like when the tree thing is happening is there also was there also chaos in the house or were they yeah so i was actually about to say so we got the the one woman there's two women and three men Ash and two other dudes whose names mm-hmm. I don't remember. They don't matter. They really it's, it's don't. It's Jake and something. Uh, Bobby. Bobby. Which Joe. one is which? Who the Never fuck mind. Knows? Bobby Joe's a woman. I was going to say Bobby Joe's a classic uh, southern lady name. Yeah. But so while the one woman is being tree fucked in the forest, um, Ash and the researcher lady get uh, led outside by the, the hick guy toting a shotgun like we're done with this this is enough i am running the table now you guys have to do what i say i'm in charge mm-hmm. and it's at this point that ash's like demonic side because he you know is still 
uh, I guess in in part possessed, um, comes out right and fights off the um, gun toting hillbilly, and and everyone kind of runs away. Right, the mm-hmm. uh, the researcher lady runs into a uh, I think it was the house, grabs a, a this wacky looking knife that was accompanying the 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 book in the original and still. Uh, kind of a part of the, of this one it doesn't really have much significance um and she's she's waiting she's waiting she's waiting and uh the second someone comes through the door she stabs and you're like yes that's right this is what you do in this situation you are on the attack wrong guy though she, <laughs> literally her partner i think or no no the, no, no. The hick guy. so the, the her partner we actually didn't talk about he dies uh he's the first one to die because grandma Gets him. Grandma Henrietta. <laughs> grandma Grandma gets him. And then he like floats over top of him and was like, oh. It's the mother, but yeah. <laughs> no, he. He does. No, the. It's not a grandma. It's her mom. <laughs> no, I know. I'm saying he, the, the researcher's boyfriend, floats above them and goes, No, 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 no but you were like, it was it grandma. That's what, that's what I was saying. It's, she's somebody's grandma. <laughs> her so, name is Henrietta. That's a grandma-ass name. That's a grandma-ass name. So he got got uh, a little bit earlier on. So lady's getting tree-fucked. Researcher stabs uh, Jimmy. The Hick. The Hick, Hick, Hick Bob, who's he, what's it? And then and then Ash comes in. Like it, it's, it's, good. it's good timing. He comes in right after the other guy gets stabbed, and she closes the door and, and uh, you know, it tries the woman tries to save him and it just does not go well right <laughs> um this leads ash to coming back in and there's a the, the one carryover that i guess might serve as why you'd show some scenes from the first one into this one which is the the necklace that ash gives his girlfriend at uh. the beginning because this is the thing that the the researcher lady is now holding when uh, demon ash comes to attack her and she's like and he sees it and he's like oh damn it no i i can't kill i loved that girl <laughs> and becomes regular regular ash again also we should mention that Annie, I don't know what language the Necronomicon is. Well, I love that too. I don't think it is a language. I don't think it ascribed itself to a single people's history because I think then that would come with some degree of needing to be based in something. And it's just like, here's symbols, here's um, a a language in sound that isn't uh, anything too descript and here is the name of a demon that isn't also like too descript right what were you gonna say because i was saying that she's starting to translate these pages and that becomes important later on because before jake you know gets demonized annie's annie's the name of the researcher lady is translating the pages and then apparently you know jake turns into the demon and then throws the pages into the cellar which it's like, oh no, the pages, but that'll come back up later. Yeah. Um, so it's at this point when Ash and we said her name was Annie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, all right, time to fuck ass, and we get what becomes the, I think the defining weapon and um, characteristic of this franchise. Mm. Why? What? What? I know what you're going for it's just or like I know where you're going with it it's just uh it's just funny what is 
that he attaches a chainsaw to his stumpy ass arm. So this is this is the thing. It's that, like the Terminator. Of this her. is the thing that every horror movie icon has a defining weapon of choice. Mm-hmm. You know, Freddy Krueger has the glove with the knives. Uh, Michael Myers has like the kitchen knife. Mm. Uh, Jason Voorhees has the machete. And you can make an argument that Leatherface of Texas Chainsaw Massacre has the uh, the chainsaw. But what makes this movie and this this hero's... Because uh, in this instance, it is the hero that has the iconic weapon. Uh, different is that the chainsaw becomes almost immediately attached to his person. Mm-hmm. Which is great. <laughs> it is great. Ash go, has to go down into the basement, and so he arms himself, which, oh, round of applause, great. And he arms himself by literally arming himself <laughs> with a chainsaw Damn. arm and a sawn-off shotgun. <laughs> it's great. And also, uh, he, uh, and by him, I mean Bruce Campbell issues the line that becomes his trademark line throughout his entire career whether it's this property or a different property, groovy. Groovy. Ugh. It is issued once. It is it is uh, zoomed in on like it's a line. It's not overly thrown away by any means. But it just like that one word, which is it seems like a decade too late because it feels very seventies. Right. Just latches onto his his persona. So for whatever reason, <laughs> shout out to fans of Burn Notice. <laughs> So then we get a really nice, like, tense scene of Ash going into the basement to collect the pages that Kel was talking about. Because mm-hmm. the uh, the Hick guy, as he was leading um, Ash and Annie outside with the shotgun, was like, fuck your pages, we're doing this shit my way, and threw him into the basement with Evil Granny. And um, it's a really, it's a it's a cool change of pace, because even though this movie has been drenched in fake blood and gory shots, it takes all of that away and instead becomes like a suspense scene, mm-hmm. a, suspense, a suspense set piece where it's like granny's hiding somewhere. We don't know where she is, you know, and he just has to like go down to this creepy crawly basement, get what he needs and make it back safe. And it leans into that instead of it being some like big all out brawl scene. Which is like effective, you know. It you know he he gets fooled by a hissing pipe, and uh, it it ends up being a really interesting like series of tension, or, or, you know. Yeah, and it was it wasn't like campy like the other scenes either. Like it wasn't like the the scene I'm thinking about like the that was like so gory but really funny was when they shot he shot his own hand in the wall. And it like gushed like projectile gallons of blood. Oh, that was such a good scene. Blushed out. But I'm saying like it wasn't that was long. It was like it was a, it was kind of as if like that scene when he was like down in the basement, like hunting Henrietta was like a, from a different movie. Like hunting Henrietta completely... sounds like a documentary <laughs> film from 1998. <laughs> hunting um, Henrietta. Do you know how they did that shot of the, the, the water wall? No. They filmed Bruce Campbell lying horizontally with the wall above him filled a tank with that fake blood stuff and had it run down and then just, you know, turned the camera horizontally as well. So that way gravity did all the work. Yeah. It just looked like he was, um, 
Interesting. Standing, it, yeah. which is a common trick, but it, it's so well executed. Agreed. Uh, so at this point, Granny becomes like, she gets freed. Uh, she spooks Ash, but he gets back upstairs, and then they have a fight scene. Yeah. And we, we enter into the, the final stage of the film, which is, so the core idea behind the, the, the what these new pages say as a way of getting rid of the demon is... It's not a spell that makes the demon go away. It's a it's a spell that um, anthropomorphizes it, right? C- causes a, a corporeal being to be created of the spirit, summoning it essentially, and then opening a a portal outside of time and space to send it away to, which is a really interesting idea too, because it's not just this like, you know cure all of like oh we, you say this thing and bing bing bang boom it's uh it's gone and it's nothing that the other people without those pages could have ever figured out right you know it it, it makes it be also less of like a because this is only maybe well actually at this point we're probably about a decade out of um of the exorcist mm. which that is kind of how it ends it it, it, it the demon in that movie transfers bodies and then that guy kills himself. Like, mm-hmm. that's the idea there. Spoilers for a 50-year-old movie. <laughs> um, but this one, it's like, no, 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 we're going to manifest him and then, or it, and then and then shoo it away. So Ash comes back up from the the depths of the, the, uh, the basement, kills evil granny, and then it's like, time to make the demon real. And then we get, like, the wildest... A uh, combination of stop motion, prosthetics, mechanical, practical effects stuff where this creature just, you know, becomes like it's it's part of the, the, the trees. It's it's a huge mouth thing like it's kind of a, a big confluence of all the elements we'd seen previously that starts to grapple with ash as the uh, the, the weather gets insane outside and. There's the faces of previous victims, like all like built into the uh, the prosthetics. It's, it was a really great final like battle scene. Oh, it's crazy! And then a big portal like opens in the sky that starts to like suck stuff in. You know, like as though it's uh, the end of Alien, and Ridley is trying to push the alien out into the vacuum of mm-hmm. space. And so Ash gets the demon to get into the portal but then he ends up getting sucked into it himself so you'd think at this point the movie would end well he's also in a car no a car gets sucked in too so if the movie ends there which i forgot it didn't (laughs) (laughs) you literally while we were watching it you were like oh you're never gonna guess where it goes in the third one and then he lands where he lands well hold on hold on hold on if the movie ends there, how do you feel about the movie? I feel better about it than what actually happened. Not the question. How do you feel about the progression of events and that kind of like cliffhanger ending, if you want to call it that? I like it because it gives you something to to look forward to for the third one. You're like, oh, fuck. Like, is he going to go meet a demon? Is he going to, you know what I mean? Like, do they have another scene when they're over there? Like, where does it lead? It, it opens up the possibilities, I think. I think it would have been a fine ending. 
I think it's an interesting, because if you end it there, I think the assumption would be that either Ash is dead, which would be fair. That seems to be the goal of what they're doing for the demon. Or you say that he's gone to the demon's realm, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. And you enter into some unearthly hellscape kind of thing where Ash has to figure out a way to get back to his reality, right? You've entered into a multiple realms kind of thing. You know, the afterlife is real and this is some kind of manifestation of it or whatever. So what they end up doing, which I love, (laughs) is time travel. Ash gets plopped down from the sky in a desert surrounded by people dressed up in knight's armor. Um, And uh, they're all getting ready to attack him. They're getting ready to stab him. A winged demon creature starts, you know, coming, screeching across the sky. He raises up his shotgun, blows its head off, and then everyone kneels in fealty to him, um, accepting him as their new god. As he screams, no, no. He's, like, really upset about it. I would be, too. I got stuck in what could only be, like, the 1300s or some shit. Um So part of the reason for this is that this setup was what Sam Raimi wanted the sequel to be. But the studio was like, "Uh, no, can you give us something closer to the first one? And then if that does okay, then we'll let you make the time travel movie. But I love that this is where it goes with it because it's it's unexpected. And I think that's what the movie does uh well throughout the whole way is that it is both exactly what you expect and a little bit subversive Mm -hmm. right so you're expecting gore and you're expecting certain uh, jump scares or certain tension but it also gives you a a little bit of a different version than what you might have been expecting as a result of it and this was like the ultimate version of that like no one was no one in the movie theater or, or sitting at home watching this movie for the first time is going to see Ash get sucked into that portal and go cross your arms and lean back and go, I bet he ends up in the 1300s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know that portal? That portal leads right to England. Yeah. It's it's a ridiculous, ridiculous choice that I fucking love. Tell me how you feel about it. It's so, again, it reminds me of like the... The, you know those movies? This uh, is I the guess, original Multiverse of Madness. Sorry, continue. I was going to say the, the I guess those are stop motion, like the Rudolph movies and the Jack. Like yes. That style of like when the, when the demon bird velociraptor thing came, dragon thing came down from the sky. I think you meant pterodactyl. Yeah. What did I say? Velociraptor? Velociraptor. Yeah, that's a different one. Um, Kel, no paleontologist. <laughs> right? Work in marketing. Um, came down from the sky and but it was it was like it looked so fake but like so fake where it wasn't scary at all it wasn't unsettling it was just like what the fuck am i watching like and in the background it being it going from like the night in the woods thing to bright and sunny like not a not a a cloud in the fucking sky like so bright was such a contrast on top of the, like the very you know the differences in theme there was like very stark and had me being like what the fuck actually just happened? It's also fun because they did tease this earlier in the film. You know, there's an illustration in one of the pages that the the daughter Annie uh, brings to the cabin 
where she's like, uh, they they were able to get rid of this demon one other time, as shown in these pages, back in the 1300s or some shit. And there's a picture of a guy, you know, like, doing a little thing. And yeah. it's not, like, well-defined. It's not, like, an HG or HD image or, you know, overly thoroughly illustrated. But that is clearly, as you see the ending, supposed to be where you expect the ending of the third one to be. Yeah. Which is a fun little touch. Um, How? Tell me more about the third one, though. I'm never gonna watch it. Well, we will get there. We'll okay. get there. So, so that is that is the end of the movie. So, let's kind of go into our, our our typical wrap up questions here um, for a sequel, because again, very much so, not a remake. Um. How did you feel about this as it in its function as a sequel film? I think it worked as a sequel because it introduced it introduced elements that played really nicely on the first one, but you didn't have to watch the first one to like understand the stakes of what was going on and the fact that like I, I think it was a good like standalone film, which I think um, you know a, a sequel should also be. Um, I like that it gave you like the little like recap in the beginning and then the ending again, I, I really wasn't a fan of, I don't, I still don't know how to feel about it. Um, but I just, I think the, they upped the ante and like the, the effects and like, I don't know, it was more than just like a, some kids in the woods kind of thing. Like it was, there were like stakes to it. I don't know. Like I was like, Oh shit. Like Ash, like, he really does emerge as like a hero in this film quite literally by, by the end of it. But like, you know, he's not only grappling with this demon, he ends up grappling like with himself in a lot of ways. And then like, you know, had just gone through this with having had killed or he didn't kill them, but having had experienced the deaths of four of his closest friends now has to do like the same type of thing with four perfect strangers um, in order to like, you know, save himself and and banish this evil for good i don't know i thought it was i thought it was a great sequel i I didn't mean i i loved it because again it was so creepy in my opinion but i thought it was good hot take this is the best sequel we've talked about so far (laughs) i think Uh, i agree people would say aliens and i understand why people would say that Mm because it is one of the highest grossing movies of all time when it came out but this, I think, is such a more... In- it actually, it does a lot of the same things that Alien does, Aliens, dollar sign, does well. <laughs> um, because one of, the, one, you know, one of the, the differences between Ripley in the first one versus Ripley in the second one is that Ripley's like, in the first one, she's like, oh, fuck, I don't know what this is. This is crazy. Oh, my God, how do I do this? I'm so fucking scared. Um, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a competent, smart person doing all the wrong things, but boy, oh boy, is this not what I want to be doing today? Mm-hmm. And in the second one, she's like way more hard boiled. And she's like, you fucking idiots. I am telling you what right. to do. Like, why don't you fucking do it? I'll do it my goddamn self. I've been here before you imbeciles. Right. There, there's, there's a, a, a through line of growth that is clearly occurred between the two of them that doesn't often happen in horror films, you know? So many times throughout uh, multiple horror movies as there seem to be like just no growth because there's no – because if, if there's too much growth, I guess it would remove some of what makes the movies work, right? If you become 
too efficient at ridding zombies from your society, then all of a sudden your movies aren't going to be about zombies overrunning society. Mm-hmm. They'll be about the reparation of society or the the, the rebuilding of, of 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 your world, which is a perfectly interesting movie, but not necessarily a horror movie, right? Which is why all of the George Romero movies, especially after his bouts with alcoholism, uh, kind of become more like B camp movies because they they don't have any ability to grow in them so you have to change it in a different way and that means having more goofy effects or more sex some other kind of appeal that isn't character based which is less interesting and while this film has so much shared uh theme and plot even from the first one there's enough of the character growth from one to two between ash uh and there's enough plot advancement from one to two with the book that it it works really well you don't feel like you're watching just a full all all out retreading of events there is something that is different about it um they escalate the 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 gore of course because they have the budget to that was Mm -hmm. the only constraint though in the original uh but they really you know, keep it tight to 85 minutes and they, they, they just burn through the events. There, there's not an attempt to expand too far out mm-hmm. that they need a lot of like languid exposition scenes. There's, there's no exposition scenes whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Instead, it is just like a small extension of plot, a small development of characters so that Ash isn't constantly like, you know, gripping his forehead like why why um it really is like ah well i gotta kill my girlfriend again jeez you know so i think it's very effective uh in that way so it's an interesting question we've asked ourselves about whether this is an attempt at a franchise because there is a third one that is the last one that of the original bunch and I'm not sure if I would say, and it, it's clearly set up by the ending, but I'm not sure that there was a want for this to become a big extended universe. Like, I think the only reason that there is that set up at the ending was because Sam Raimi wrote that script already and he was like, fuck, I want to make this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, do you think this of this is a franchise play? I don't think so. Yeah. And I was also not listening, but I'm going to um, make up something. Like, when you're watching the ends of all the Friday the 13th movies, because there are 26 of them or some shit. Not really that many, but fucking close. Yeah. There's almost always a moment where Jason's, like, hand pops back right, out of right. the grave or, like, something. Yeah. He bursts out of the water. Something happens where you're like, and stay tuned for the next one. Yeah. And I don't think this is that. Yeah. And there's also, like... That's a franchise where, like, they could make a million of those. Like, and he just keeps coming back. I don't see a world in which Ash, you know, once he defeats the demon in this realm, do they just keep popping him to different centuries? Like, theoretically, they have a whole book of the Necronomicon to go through. So, like, they probably could if they wanted to. Um, But, yeah, I don't think it was necessarily an attempt. But I, how many years after was the third one? Army of Darkness, which is the third one, comes out in 1992, five years after uh, this this film. Ash still the main character? Yep, Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell, baby. Bruce Campbell, who is in, I think, all of Sam Raimi's movies. They are 
they're friends. You know, they they made these movies together. Yeah. I have never, I have not seen uh, Multiverse of Madness, but Bruce Campbell is in that movie. I'd also recommend anyone who's a fan of like these types of horror movies, please go watch Bubba Hotep. It is ridiculous. Never seen that. I know, but I was telling you about it. It's about a, a guy, two retirees in an old age home, one who thinks he's um, Elvis, and uh, one who thinks he's JFK, but that guy's played by a black <laughs> actor, so he thinks he's black JFK, um, have to battle against a mummy that came alive and is taking the life away of the people in the <laughs> retirement home. It's Elvis and JFK versus a mummy. What what more could you ask for? Yeah. Uh, so what do you think the third one is? What do you think uh, uh, Ash of Darkness? Army of Darkness is <laughs> about. Guess the plot of Army of Darkness. Okay. <laughs> Make so a pitch for Army of Darkness. Army of Darkness. Ash has defeated the demon in one realm and um, has unleashed it in another realm. He has all of the, you know, uh, fun hijinks of, like, someone who's from the future coming back in time. And, like, he's, like, you know, got an... I mean, an automobile literally falls from the sky into this realm. So it's, like, he's probably got a cell phone. He's wearing jeans. Like, it's going to be a whole kooky, like, what are those kind of scenario. And then he's going to fight some some demons that will take the the form of medieval style demons maybe people with the armor on or something like that am i close so it he is taken to the court of king arthur oh wow well he is royalty at this point he no just... he's taken as a prisoner because they think he's a spy and some of the ongoing pol- political differences occurring at this time but he just he saved all those people Oh, they don't care about that. They think he's a spy for King Henry's men. Mm. Um, anyway, he 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 gets free because he he kills a thing and becomes one of the wise men. So he, he <laughs> tries to figure out how to get back to his own time, and so he researches where the Necronomicon is, and he goes through a haunted forest, and he finds uh, the the Necronomicon after a series of kooky events. Um, but it turns out that there's three books. <laughs> So he has to figure out which one's the real one. What? Um, yeah, it's hilarious. One has a face on it, and he says, I'm the Necronomicon. So then he just, like, steals the books, and then he tries to, like, mumble through the phrases that he remembered hearing from from Annie in the second one. Uh, and then he gets returned to his own time. It's it's a, it's an insane movie. We sounds kind of lame. Watch. It's so it, much fun. No, really? it's so much fun. Because it sounds like it misses out on a lot of, like, the the... The gory, the gore, and like the hijinks. It's all there. Stuff. I'm just skipping over it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's great. It's so good. Um, any final thoughts on on this movie? This was a fun one. I will not be watching any more horror movies. Therefore, we will not be reviewing them on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, stay tuned for our Evil Dead remake episode. <laughs> if they come out with the the next one like in this year or next year or whatever then i will i might agree to do this one you just explained and the new one but other than that i do not wish to go back into the world of the necronomicon uh yeah it, it it's it's a 
it's what you want out of a sequel. It's kind of like when you when your favorite band releases a new album, you want it to be close enough to what made you like that band's music in the first place, but not so far away from the genre or stylings that you no longer connect to it in that way. A lot of bands do this, you know, uh, I don't know why Mumford and Sons is the one that's sticking out to me right now, but I remember like Mumford and Sons lost a huge following. Like I think the third album came out because everyone was like, ah, this isn't very folksy Mm -hmm. or some shit like that. And because uh, that's true, like it is very easy for a remake or an, a sequel film to go too far away from what made the originals enjoyable and to just kind of you know lose audience because it's it's not what it was. But it also needs to be, you know, some level of progress from the original. And I think this does it very well. Agreed. Uh, OK. Anything else before we go? No. All right. Well, thanks for spending time talking about it. Thanks for... Showing me the world of the Necronomicon. Necronomicon. I probably haven't said it right one time during this podcast. You go practice. I will. Bye. Bye.